the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, a winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Brucott to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from See You at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See You at the Game website, and now your host for the See You at the Game podcast. While this is the 18th episode of the first season for the podcast, this is the first episode in which Brad Geiger and I get to discuss a 2020 CU football game. Your CU Buffs raced to a 35-7 first half lead against UCLA, that hung on for a 48-42 victory. Unlikely heroes were found in first-time starter quarterback Sam Neuer and first-time running back and now Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week, Jarek Broussard, who teamed up to lead the Buffs to 525 yards of total offense. In recapping the game, Brad and I will talk about what we learned from the game and who were the unsung heroes from the victory. We'll then discuss not only the Pac-12 Game of the Week for last weekend, the unlikely USC comeback over Arizona State, but also which of the conference games for the upcoming week are worthy of your attention. We will then turn our attention to the CU Stanford game, looking at our tips, talent, intangibles, preparation, and statistics for the first CU road game of the 2020 season. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you may find your podcast. And don't forget to give us a rating, and yes, that means you, Stoner. Now, let's talk about the first victory of the Carl Durrell era at the University of Colorado and his first road game as CU's head coach. Okay, so we are going to start off by talking a little bit about Colorado versus UCLA, a 48-42 Colorado victory, which, of course, we predicted almost exactly to the point total. Is that what you remember, Brad? Yeah, that's exactly what I recall. I remember us thinking that the defenses would pretty much dominate this game, which turned out to be, with perhaps the exception of the CU turnovers, completely and totally incorrect. <laughs> so, yes, 90 points, the most ever in CU history for an opening game, topping last year's 83 points when CU beat Colorado State 52-31. So tune in next year when CU will be involved in a game that has 97 points, hopefully most of them on the Colorado side of the ball. Well, it's going to be northern Colorado, so it better be mostly on the Colorado side of the ball if there's 97 points scored. So. A nice showing by the offense, 525 yards of offense, evenly split, 264 yards rushing, 261 yards passing. 
Of course, the Buffs gave up 478 yards. And in the third quarter, I, the way I phrased it in my essay was it looked an awful lot like the John Embry 2012 defense when UCLA had a scoring drive of two plays, 75 yards, 36 seconds, six plays, 77 yards, one minute and 26 seconds, four plays, 75 yards, one minute and 22 seconds. So apparently having a two to one edge in the time of possession doesn't mean that much when you are giving the other team touchdowns in 90 seconds or less. How did you survive the second half? It was unquestionably challenging. I was with a few other CU fans, and uh, it is hard, of course, to watch basic screen passes and basic one-pass options turn into long runs. One of the things you think about when you think about a young secondary is that they're going to have trouble covering. The other, th the thing you don't really consider is that they're going to have trouble being in position on that kind of play. And yeah, the front seven certainly could have played better, but the bottom line was that every time the ball went to the outside, you were trying to figure out if the quarterback knew where he was supposed to be, and far too often he did not. Yeah. Uh, Darren Rakestraw said that it was a matter of a quote-unquote few missed assignments, which is optimistic. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's scary when opposing players are running unmolested through the secondary. Yeah, that... First touchdown to the tight end, he literally looked like he ran onto the field without, you know, from the sideline without anybody noticing. There wasn't a CU buff within 15 yards of him when he caught the ball. It looked like he was there for a fair catch for a punt or something like that. So, yeah, a few missed assignments, and it looks like Chris Miller, the star back, is not going to be available for this upcoming week. So the CU defensive backfield gets even younger and even less experienced. But fortunately, as we'll talk a little bit later, the Stanford offense is not exactly noted for throwing the ball as well as other offenses are. Good thing we're not playing, say, USC this weekend because um, the buff defense certainly needs some extra time to figure out its missed assignments. That said, there were, you know, there are things to build on with those two fourth quarter, fourth down stops. There are you know, moments that you can go back and look at on tape where things were done very much correctly. Defensive line was what we expected. Nate Landman was everywhere as we expected. So, you know, there are things to build upon. So I think we put that under the what we know category. Two fourth down stops in the fourth quarter or uh, in the second half, he was directly involved in both of them. He only had six tackles in the game and one quarterback hurry, but the fourth down and one stop, he was the guy that plugged the hole, made the stop. And the fourth and 11 later on, he was right at the feet of Thompson Robinson, which didn't allow him to step up in the pocket and the ball was underthrown and the ball got turned over. So Nate Landman only had six tackles, which is unusual for him. He's usually in double digits. But he still had, as you mentioned, you know, his presence was felt. So we didn't know about that, but there are a lot of things that we didn't expect in terms of the offensive production from Sam Neuer, 257 yards passing, one TD, and another rushing touchdown, no turnovers. There were no interceptions, no fumbles. He managed the game very, very well. And, of course, then the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week 
Jarek Broussard rushed for 187 yards, three touchdowns. Only the second CU running back to ever be the Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week, uh, joining Philip Lindsay. So that's pretty nice company for someone making their very first career start. So we do know that we ended up with an offensive tandem at quarterback and tailback that we did not expect to necessarily shine that came through in spades. Yes, even though, uh, yeah, Colby Purcell, the center, got injured, the offensive line did exceptionally well. There was officially one sack, and that was actually on an intentional grounding call. So, yes, so Sam Neuer actually did not hit the ground with the ball in his hand uh, the entire evening, which is an amazing statistic for an offensive line, which was supposed to be better, but not necessarily assumed by the rest of the planet, was going to be better. So uh, Mitch Rodrigue, we've talked a lot about him in the offseason, being the offensive line coach that came to us from a high school. There was some concern about whether or not they were going to be a cohesive unit. And even with the center going down, the offensive line was perhaps the star of the game. If you think about how well they did, Colorado had seven trips to the red zone and scored six touchdowns and a field goal. You don't ask for much more than that from your offensive line. There are lots of times that the University of Colorado offense would stall out and end up with a field goal attempt, and that wasn't the case. Now, of course, there are a couple of drives that started, one at the seven-yard line, one at the one-yard line, but that being said, they still were able to punch it in, which, again, in not too distant past, that would be a would have been a concern. No, and they were able to sustain drives. They, you know, Broussard certainly ran well. I think proved to be shiftier than we thought. But he wasn't. He's not a player who's going to make his own hole. He reads the holes, I think, better than we expected. But there was space. Uh, there was space for there to go. Uh, the one sack on Neuer was a failed screen pass where he refused to throw the ball. Good choice. Should not have thrown him where he did. So there's every reason to believe that that offensive line is at least against someone the lesser talented defense is going to be able to hold its own. And it, uh, yeah, it was very impressive the ability to convert on third downs and you know have a third and one and not have to assume that they're going to be out of the shotgun and try and run wide that they have the confidence to go up the middle. I remember one third and one around midfield where Neuer took the ball under center and gained like six yards. You know, that's not supposed to happen on a quarterback sneak. And to punch the ball in, you know, with four rushing touchdowns, five rushing touchdowns, you know, that's impressive football by the offensive line. So we know who the heroes were. You know, we got Jarek Broussard and Sam Neuer, certainly heroes of the game. Who would you list as an unsung hero? Well, I'm not sure we expected Brady Russell to have five receptions. You know, especially with Katie Nixon not playing. With the offensive, uh, the receivers kind of came through. It was a very much a team effort. So I think you have to look at the fact that we were able to spread the ball around. Like I said, Brady Russell, five receptions for 77 yards. This was important. 
at the time that UCLA wanted to kind of pack the box, try to stop Neuer and Broussard runs, Brady was able to pick up, you know, not big plays, but plays across the middle that made the safeties back off. Yeah, and he had the only yeah he had the only receiving touchdown, and this is you know a Dave Platty stat that you can only get from Dave Platty. It was the first time that a tight end had the most receiving yards in a game for Colorado since 2012. So, and even that was kind of a misnomer. Is you know Scott Fernandez had a 77 yard touchdown that was his one catch of the game. So. For Brady Russell to come up with 77 yards on five catches. Yeah, I think Brady Russell is certainly somebody you could look at. And he's always, he was a team captain for the game. He has been a leader for the team. And it's nice to see him get the opportunity to get his, uh, his name in the paper. One name I would add on the defensive side would be your good friend, Darian Rakestraw. And I saw the quote you were talking about that, you know, we just have a few things to clean up and there's certainly some debate to be had as to whether or not that can be just cleaned up or other things need to happen in the defensive backfield. But he tied Landwin uh, with six tackles for the team lead. He also forced the first fumble on the punt return in the very first series of the game, which really set the tone. You've seen many games where Colorado would, they didn't go three and out. It was more like a five and out. They got one first down before punting. Have the other team come in, do a 75-yard drive, and next thing you know, we're not sure where we're going. Instead, there's a forced fumble. Colorado takes over four plays later. It's a 7 nothing game. He was also the guy that recovered the fumble from Dorian Thompson-Robinson around midfield later in the game. He didn't actually force it. It was kind of a missed handoff, but I think his presence in the backfield helped create that fumble and then he got the ball. So he uh, was involved in two of the turnovers and also had six tackles. So tip of the cap to uh, Darian Rakestraw for his efforts. So as much as we like to talk about victories, the team has to move on on to next week. But before we leave this past weekend, the first weekend for Pac-12 football, I think a little feature we want to do each week in our review and preview would be what was the game of the week last week. And I think that's pretty clear this first weekend. There's only four games that USC's come from behind 28-27 victory over Arizona State. It certainly has to be the Pac-12 game of the week. Would you like to admit for our audience where you were when USC was making its big comeback? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, had, I had actually texted you and said that the Arizona State team was for real, and particularly the defense. You didn't watch that game. ASU dominated that game. Yes. They were unquestionably, undeniably the better team for three and a third quarter. Yeah. Um, and it was just going back and watching the highlights after I walked in to be surprised by the final score. You cannot call that anything but a fluke win for USC, but it's a win, and it's a win over probably what everybody else thinks is the second-best team in the South. Yes, and perhaps USC now has a clear path, at least on paper, to the Pac-12 championship game because their crossover game is Washington State, and that's a home game. So they will certainly be favored in every game 
going forward and whether or not USC can actually pull it off will certainly remain to be seen. So let's move on to CU's upcoming opponent, uh, Stanford Cardinal, 1.30 p.m. Mountain Time on Saturday on ESPN2. Well, we like to talk about talent for the opposition. And of course, when you talk about talent for the opposition, you start with the quarterback position. And the one thing that we know for certain is that we don't know who Stanford will have as their starting quarterback. If you haven't been paying attention to the news on Stanford, their normal starting quarterback, Davis Mills, did not play against Oregon. That was a 35-14 loss Saturday night in Eugene. He was out due to coronavirus testing results and tracing pro- protocols. So they started Jack West, a sophomore, and he went 13 for 19 for 154 yards. And freshman Tanner McGee, who is a four-star recruit, also played in the game. Now, as we are talking on Monday, we don't know who the starting quarterback is going to be. Do you think it's going to make a difference as to who the starting quarterback is going to be? Do you have a preference as to who you'd like to see as a starting quarterback? Well, I would prefer not to see Mills if I had a choice, but I don't. You know, he, most people expected him to be the strength of the Stanford offense. So it's challenging to know. It would be, you know, there, the freshman was quite good. I would imagine that if Stanford gets Davis Mills back, Stanford will play Davis Mills. Yeah. Um, but given the complications of not just testing but tracing in the Bay Area, it will be surprising to me if we know that before midweek or even later. Yeah. And looking at the 24-7 sports site for Stanford, they seem to think that he is not going to be eligible to play. But, again, we'll find out Saturday afternoon. My fear is there's a lot of hype about the Tanner McGee, the, the freshman coming in that he, you know, we don't want to have one of those Khalil Tate moments where the starting quarterback goes down and the freshman comes in and rushes for a NCAA record. Not that McGee is a, a running quarterback, but he's also not a true freshman. He's actually, I think he's 22 years old. He was on an LDS mission. So even if he's coming in as a freshman, he's not coming in as a wide-eyed freshman. So we'll have to see who starts at quarterback. They are going to try and run the ball. And against Oregon, they had almost two 100-yard rushers. Austin Jones had 100 yards and two touchdowns on 20 carries. And Nathaniel Pete had 93 yards on only six carries, including a 73-yard run. So Stanford's going to try and run the ball. The question is, can Colorado stop the run? That's an interesting question. You know, UCLA wasn't able to put together a consistent running game, in large part because they didn't have to. You know, they weren't, this is not a three-yard in the cloud of dust kind of team at UCLA. One can expect that Stanford, uh, just based on history, is going to try to establish a more consistent run game. And that's a challenge we have not yet seen CU do. Now, that should play into CU's Skills that should play into that good front seven that we're That should play into Nate Landman having more tackles than he did last game. But we just don't know. Yeah. It's going to be that way for quite a bit of time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the game plan is for Stanford if they try and stick with their running game because CU did 
pretty well against the run early when UCLA was trying to establish a running game. Uh, UCLA wasn't getting very far with the running game, but then when they opened it up and started airing it out, they found either penalties or wide open receivers. And so if you're the Stanford offensive coordinator, do you think, okay, I've got to look at the game film here and see that there are holes in the secondary, or do I stick to my guns and try and play smash mouth? So it's interesting. It will be interesting to see how things play out for Stanford against the CU defense on the other side of the ball. Stanford's defense has always been fairly stout. You can say that Oregon, you know, had a 35, 14 win, but it was only 14 to seven at halftime. You could make the argument that really the Stanford defense just wore down due to lack of production from the Stanford offense. And, yeah, you can say, okay, Stanford only scored 14 points against Oregon, but Oregon has one of the, well, probably the best defense in the Pac-12 and, and perhaps one of the best defenses in the country. So I don't think you can judge the 14 points all by itself. And giving up 35 to Oregon and Eugene, even with the new quarterback and everything going on for the Ducks, giving up only 14 points in the first half is pretty laudable. So the Stanford defense... I know that you think that they're not as stout as they have been in years past. This is a team that, dating back to the Colorado game last November, has now lost five straight games, and that's not a David Shaw M.O. And to lose uh, the last four games the last season, finished 4-8, and eight, and then to lose their opener against Oregon, there's got to be some trepidation in the Stanford world at this point. Against Stanford. And yeah, some of that is that Stanford was outmanned, but what we saw was that they had trouble stopping them, stopping the run. It feels like this CU offense that none of us saw coming is well constructed to play against this Stanford defense. And I think one of the things that we saw from the CU offense is that Chevrini and Durrell think they have a plan, they want a balanced offense. They are going to be willing to try to put together long drives. And they think, and evidence seems to show, that they have the offensive line to continue to do that. Well, until proven otherwise, we're going to enjoy a, a team that puts up 525 yards of total offense and 48 without points. Best threat. Yeah, without Katie Nixon and without Alex Fontenot. Now, Fontenot is definitely still out. Carl Durrell said that Katie Nixon could have played in an emergency last weekend, maybe available this weekend. So there's going to be one more weapon in the arsenal to get KD Nixon back, which would certainly help the, uh, the passing game. One thing that could be at play for both teams, well, I put it under the intangible categories, is the kicking game. Colorado fans know very well that CU went two for five in field goal attempts against UCLA, what you probably don't know is that Stanford went 0 for 4 in field goal attempts against Oregon. So which field goal unit will you know prosper or do better? And of course, we got the news that James Stefano, the 32-year-old senior from Australia, decided to retire after game one, which I have to say would have to come as a surprise. 
Um, it was not something forecast. There was all this talk over the off season when there was lots of things to talk about since there was nothing to talk about, about how he was in good shape and excited about coming back. And then after one game, and the, the one block was certainly not his fault. The highlights show definitely that the, the wing, who's a backup tight end, just gave a little arm elbow to the outside rusher, didn't even try and block him, just kind of gave a little hi, how you doing, and just turned to look and watch the kick and turned out getting blocked. And the one that he missed was a 51-yarder that fell just short. So I don't think it was necessarily the coaching staff saying, you can't perform, you need to move on. It was obviously something that he wanted to do, and we'll wish him well because he was, I believe, he's like eighth, an all-time scoring in terms of kicking points. So he uh, he did his thing for the University of Colorado, and it's a surprise to have him go. There have been rumors of some sort of lingering injuries, some sort of lingering leg pain. Now, there are always those players who decide that they've had enough, that the effort, that the dedication just is not there. That perhaps is even better for a 33-year-old. Yeah, I mean, Cindy's got married. He has a child. Life kicks in and other priorities come into play. So we'll wish him well and hope that Evan Price will fill his shoes and that they can work on some of their snapping issues. I think some of the problems were that the, some of the snaps were high, which, of course, throws off the timing. Talk about unsung heroes. Colorado has had a history of four-year starters at long snapper these walk-on guys that come in and do their job for four years. And some of them have gone on to the NFL and actually made a career out of this. And we had to replace along with other players. We had to bring in another holder because Alex Kelly, the punter was the holder forever. And now you've got a new long snapper and that's something. Yes, you work on in fall camp, but it's also something you work on in spring ball. And, you know, it's just repetition, repetition, repetition. And, Fortunately, it didn't turn out to cost the buffs against UCLA, but it's certainly something we're going to be paying close attention to in games going forward. One would suspect that was something that's been uh, discussed and will be emphasized in practice. That will be a priority this week, yes. Speaking of the game itself, it's CU's first road game, and Stanford's obviously first home game. Palo Alto, Stanford is... Probably, I think you can say this without too much fear of contradiction, probably the least intimidating venue in the Pac-12, if you think about different places. But you can say that the Rose Bowl, um, and I've been there for regular season game, you can have 60,000 people in the Rose Bowl for regular season games and it feels empty. But for whatever reason, the Stanford student body is not going to be bothered with going to games. It just does not seem to be a scary venue and with no fans at all, um, they might have more than what CU had. The official attendance for the CU game was 554. I did not see any Dave platitudes about the last time CU had less than a thousand people at a home game, probably in the twenties or something like that, but not a record you want to set. So going into California where There's a lot of testing going on, a lot of concern. Cal had to miss its first game. If you're a player, if you're a coach, if you're a team trying to travel into that venue, 
Is it a big disadvantage to Colorado to have to travel into that type of atmosphere, or is it a wash because there are not going to be any fans and Stanford's not a very intimidating place to play in the first place? Well, and one of the reasons that travel is always a problem in the past is you have to change your lifestyle. You go from being out in the community to being isolated with your team. Nowadays, that's life. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, we're going to have to still see how travel impacts each other, but I'm much gladder to be going to Stanford than I would be going to Oregon or SC for our first road game. I don't think it's a massive home field advantage for Stanford in this kind of situation at this time. Bay Area is locked down as tight as a drum, so hopefully the bus can fly in, be at their hotel, drive the game, get back out of it. Yeah, I don't. I think having a 12:30 local time start is not a bad thing. That you don't have to sit around in your hotel room for 12 hours waiting to go to the venue to you know finally get to warm up. That you can yeah fly in Friday night, do your walkthrough, have the team meeting, have the team dinner, watch a movie, go to bed, get up, have breakfast, go up to the stadium and have your game. Get back on the plane and you're home for dinner. So. All that considered, Colorado being 1-0, Stanford being 0-1, Stanford, I believe you said before we started, that is a seven-point favorite. So given even the three-point home field advantage, which I don't think the Vegas is actually giving three points this year for home field advantage necessarily because there isn't much of a home field advantage for anybody, obviously the pundits still think that Stanford is the better team even not knowing about who their quarterback is going to be. So that being said, well, actually, we're going to hold in in suspense for two more minutes here because I want to ask you what other Pac-12 game this weekend you're going to be paying attention to. And we can go through what the different options are here. We've got USC at Arizona. USC being a 14-point favorite, Oregon at Washington State, Oregon being a 9-point favorite, Cal at Arizona State with ASU being a 4-point favorite, Utah at UCLA, which got moved from Friday to Saturday, Utah being a field goal, 3-point favorite, and then Oregon State's traveling to Washington with a 9 p.m. Mountain Time kickoff. Let's see if we stay up for that one. Washington being a 13-point favorite over the Beavers. So of those games, which would you have the most interest in? What do you think would have the most national cachet? Well, the most national cachet is going to be the Oregon-Washington State game. Washington State still proved to have an offense. Oregon's got to travel. Oregon and SC are the two ranked teams in Pac-12. Well, the nation be way we watching that. Honestly, I'm a little bit more interested about that Cal Arizona State game. How does Arizona State come back from a really challenging loss? Cal, which was picked to be a better team than it has been in quite some time, who without COVID probably would have had some aspirations to be a whole team that we just don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting. How many of them are going to play? Yeah, exactly. If they're playing with the scout team, then you definitely wouldn't want to take Arizona State. I always want to see, you know, see who's next opponent in Arizona State's the next game, which has been set for an 8 o'clock kickoff at Folsom next Saturday. So that's going to be a Pac-12 after dark for the Buff Nation. 
which means I'll be up typing at midnight. So thank you very much, you know, Fox and ESPN for giving us an 8 p.m. kickoff. Now I'll get back to Colorado at Stanford. What is your prediction for Saturday afternoon's game? state this because we don't have any polygraphs or didn't write it down on a piece of paper and hold it up in front of each other on our Zoom meeting, but uh, I had a 27-20 Colorado and for almost the same reasons, as much as I was stressed last Saturday during the UCLA game, the, the reality was is that every time UCLA came back within a score, Colorado scored. And they never had the ball out unless, you know, you count the two plays when it was seven, nothing before uh, Carson Wells got his interception and they made it 14, nothing. The rest of the game after the first five minutes, UCLA never took the field with the ball with a chance to tie or take the lead. We had a two score lead every time that they took the ball. So they got back. To 14-7, we made it 21-7. They got it up to 35-28, and we were panic, full panic mode. CU goes on a long drive, makes it 42-28. They bring it back 42-35. CU gets two field goals and two fourth down stops. So I think you can certainly make the argument, I would make the argument, that many of the teams of the last 15 years would not have won that game that when the thing started going poorly, when the defense started giving up 90-second drives for touchdowns, that the offense would have gone into complete three-and-out mode. There might have been a turnover. And the next thing you know, we're losing 45-42 or something like that. And this team, with only... One fall camp with this coaching staff, one fall camp with Carl Durrell actually patrolling the practice fields, already seems to be taking on the personality of its head coach that he is going to stay level. He is going to, and Mel Tucker talked about that. You know, we're not going to get too high. We're not going to get too low. It's, it's coach speak, and I understand that, but it seems to really have taken hold as well, from one game's worth of evidence that that seems to be taking hold. And what we took as being lack of passion for the coaching staff is actually preparation and belief. And this team came out, even though there was adversity, um, yeah, it's nice when you start with 35-7 advantage before you suffer some adversity, but nonetheless was able to stick to their guns, stick to their game plan, and the defense for all of its foil, foibles and all of its mistakes and giving up almost 500 yards of total offense, when the stops needed to be made, came up with two fourth down stops. 
And I was very impressed with Colorado's ability to hold on to the ball and create first downs and keep the sticks moving when it mattered most. So I'm not sure. We picked Colorado to win on a on a whim last week, and until they prove me otherwise now, I'm going to stick with them. Or until we play USC, whichever comes first. We're going to ride with the buffs on this one, and I had it down as 27-20 Colorado. So you and I are either very much on the same page or we're both very much delusional. So we'll let it play out, and we'll see what see what happens. Yes. So you remembering my text to you that I seem to have lost five pounds and I'm getting too old for this uh, uh, stuff. I don't don't think the word stuff was used, but I'm definitely getting too old for this stuff. So yes, it was a, it was a nice win, but it was stressful on some of its fans, but perhaps not on the coaching staff, which is what we'd hope for. Okay. Well, we're going to let that be the final word and We will talk again next week. So for those of you that are joining the podcast for the first time, we're going to try and have a review preview posted every Wednesday morning. And the tips, my written tips, the preview for the game will also be published on Wednesday mornings. So thank you, Brad. As always, good to talk with you. Good to talk to you. It's snowing here in Highlands Ranch, so I'm going to go cuddle in with Go Bucks. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on the CU Stanford matchup, my written tips for the game has been posted on the CU the Game website. This Friday, the website will have this week's edition of the Friday Fast Facts. After the game Saturday afternoon, there will be the game story with my essay for the Stanford game posted on Sunday morning. Next Wednesday, the next podcast will be available with the recap of the Stanford game and the preview for CU's game against Arizona State. It's great to have Colorado football back on the field and wonderful to have a CU victory to talk about. Here's hoping we'll have another win to talk about next week. Until then, be well and stay safe. Go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time when we will again see you at the game.